Welcome back. I have a very special guest today, Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. She is an obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She is a baller of obesity medicine. Dr. Fatima, please share more about how weight regulation actually starts in the brain rather than in the kitchen. You know, I absolutely love the way you asked that, you know, how it starts in the brain rather than in the kitchen. And a lot of people are just baffled by the idea that the brain is what regulates our weight. But I'm going to take you through it. It's going to sound a bit scientific. I'll try to explain it in a way that people understand. Um, But within our brain, particularly a specific portion of our brain called the hypothalamus, there are a lot of different signaling that's going on to tell our body how much to eat and how much to store. But there's two primary pathways by which the brain may regulate our weight. And one of those pathways is called the POMC or the proopiomelanocortin pathway. And if we travel down that pathway, that's the anorexigenic pathway. When we hear anorexia, which is actually a disease, but anorexigenic means it promotes a lean figure, right? So if we travel down that pathway and we have a high likelihood to travel down that pathway, we produce high levels of something called BDNF. And BDNF stands for brain-derived neurotropic factor. And when we have high levels of BDNF, we have lean expression of adipose. And adipose is a fancy word for the organ that is fat because it actually is an organ. So that's one pathway. Now, as an obesity medicine physician scientist, I exclusively care for patients with overweight and obesity. So my patients don't travel so well down that anorexigenic POMC pathway. They travel down an alternative pathway, which we call the AGRP or the AGUDI-related peptide pathway. Now that's the orexigenic pathway. Orexigenic is the opposite of anorexigenic. This is the pathway that tells our bodies to eat and store more of what we take in. Um, And so what happens if we travel down this pathway is we block or inhibit the formation of BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And we have low levels of this, we express adiposity, which means we express excess weight. Now notice, I didn't say anything about the kitchen. I didn't say anything about willpower. A lot of people think this is all about what you do, but I have not yet found a way. And if I do, I, I will tell you guys and I will retire immediately how to signal, you know, one way or another. Now, there are things that we can do to influence signaling down one pathway or another. Um, For some people, there are behavioral modifications that work, but for most, they may need um, some additional tools and strategies to help them signal um, down these pathways. And yes, our environment, what happens in the kitchen does influence some of this, but unfortunately, a lot of this is, you know, genetically influenced, hormonally driven, um, And there's a lot of hormones we could get into that really kind of drive how much we eat and how much we desire to eat. Um, So that's really important. So it's a little bit complicated. Um, I just tried to give you guys the simplest way if I could think of explaining it. Um, And it, it really shows you that when we think about weight and weight regulation, it's much more complex than we probably thought before. And that leads me to my next question regarding medications. In an interview you did on Hit Play Not Pause, you had mentioned that 20% of obesity in America is caused by medication. Could you elaborate for everyone listening to understand the effects of what types of medications and Mm -hmm. the medications um, that might... Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a great question. And a lot of people are unaware of this, this true fact, which is medications that we take for other conditions may lead to weight dysregulation and weight gain. Um, some of the big categories um, in terms of just like the overarching categories are antipsychotics, um, medications used to treat issues like bipolar um, disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, our antidepressants. Um, a lot of patients have a diagnosis of depression, and most of our antidepressants do, um, on average, lead to weight gain. Um, medications that we previously used quite frequently for patients with type 2 diabetes, what we call our saponylureas, um, those medications can lead to weight gain. Nerve um, agents um, like gabapentin, um, which are often utilized sometimes in the, the perimenopausal um, space, Lyrica, these medications can cause tremendous amounts of weight gain. Um, our sleep agents, medications we take to improve our sleep, most of them will cause weight gain. Um, and so these are just some of the big categories. Insulin is another one, and we can keep going, going on, steroids. Um, all of these medications can promote weight gain. So you might be like, okay, you know, Dr. Stanford, that's lovely, but really how much weight gain can we see? And from our psychotropic medications, those are the ones likely to cause the most weight gain. I personally have seen an excess of 200 pounds of weight gain from some of these agents. Wow. Um, when we're looking at agents like the nerve agents that may be prescribed in the peri or postmenopausal phase to help with issues surrounding um, menopause, I've seen an excess of 80 pounds of weight gain um, at the high end of those spectrum. Um, with some of the antidepressants, usually you're seeing somewhere about an average of, you know, what I've seen, 20, 25 pounds, but these are sizable numbers, right? You know, if you think about yourself, 25 pounds less, regardless of your size, you're like, oh gosh, that was a major shift. And often individuals are unaware that these can be additive, right? Um, meaning like if you're taking four different types of meds that are known to promote weight gain, that they can add weight and you are like, wait a minute, I'm doing all the right things. I don't understand. I'm taking my medications as prescribed. I'm eating well. I'm getting my exercise in, and despite all of this, something's not working. I don't understand. Why does the scale keep going up? And so people are unaware that their medications that they're taking for some of these chronic conditions can be, you know, unfortunately contributing to some of the struggles they have. That That's a good thing to know to, to also talk to the doctor about if that is one of the factors, possibly. I will pause, though, <laughs> and note that um, most doctors are unaware <laughs> that they are prescribing oh. you something. So I, I will say that, um, unfortunately, this is not something that we're typically educated about. And unless it's kind of those well-known things like steroids, which I think even the lay population knows that, oh, if I go on steroids, that will likely cause weight gain. But a lot of times the doctors are unaware and they're unaware of just the, the volume of weight gain that can ensue from these agents. So um, I spend quite a bit of time talking to my physician colleagues here in the U.S. and around the world about um, thinking about their commonly prescribed medications and coming up with alternative strategies if weight gain has been so prominent um, and really deleterious to the health of the individual. So it sounds like would an endocrinologist or or someone who's obesity medicine be the most knowledgeable if it's yeah, I would say doctor. probably in obesity medicine, um, some of the endocrine docs don't necessarily have um, specialty in this domain. Um, and so um, I would probably spend my time working with an obesity medicine physician to kind of comb through your med list to see, hey, what are some major culprits? Um, let's look back at your weight trajectory over time. Often what I'm doing is 
um, pulling up that patient's weight graph over the last 15 years. And often you can see exactly when they start at those agents. And I'm like, oh, well, was this when you, oh yeah, I didn't know. I, I just thought it was something I was doing wrong, right? A lot of times we put a lot of the blame on ourselves. That's true, which goes on to my next question about menopause. <laughs> As we know, many peri and postmenopausal women complain about the weight they put on despite maybe an unchanged diet or any change in their exercise. And they get frustrated that they can't lose the weight. So can you change your weight set point without medical intervention and how? Well, so it depends on the person and we don't usually know, but if the person is saying, look, I'm doing all of the things and let's talk about what are the things that, you know, in this lifestyle and behavioral realm, um, it'll be looking at diet quality, right? Wanting to have a minimally to no processed diet as, as much as possible. Um, recognizing that we are humans and, you know, we shouldn't be so strict and so rigid that we don't live life, you know, that's important. Um, but minimally processed is going to be best, right? Lean proteins, whole grains, fruits, vegetables is our predominant source of, of what we take in. It's, you know, so let's say we've optimized that. And then let's go to our physical activity. You know, I think, you know, people may not optimize physical activity, but a lot of people in this period and postmenopausal um, range have really gotten their activity regimen down quite nicely. I mean, the minimum, right, is 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity, but many are actually well above that. Maybe they're, you know, triathletes, maybe they're marathoners, maybe they're doing 5Ks, 10Ks, maybe, you know, they're um, doing other activities that really bring them joy. Maybe they're a Peloton enthusiast, whatever it might be, they've maybe maximized that. And then a lot of times we need to look at the next thing that a lot of people neglect as it relates to weight management, particularly in the lifestyle and behavioral health realm, and that's sleep. Sleep quality and duration plays a large role in how the body regulates weight. Um, but we can know that as we're hitting menopause and around menopause, you might find your sleep being more fragmented, more disrupted. Let's say you're having hot flashes. Let's say you're having night sweats. These things are going to wake you up. Maybe you have to go to the bathroom a bit more. Maybe you have a history of stress incontinence, meaning you have, you know, the need to go to the bathroom a little bit more frequently. Every time you kind of break that sleep, unless you're one of those people that's able to get back to sleep really quickly after going to the restroom in the middle of the night, um, this is going to affect our weight status. And so this is something that we need to pay attention to. Um, what time we're actually awake really plays a role also. This is our circadian rhythm. So um, we want to be awake when it's bright outside, like it is for us right now, and asleep when it's dark outside. But with the globalization of our economy, globalization of the world, we can be up talking to our colleagues in Australia and New Zealand in the middle of the night. And that's well in the middle of the day for them. But for us, it's the time that we should be you know, getting restful sleep. And so while it's great to collaborate with our, our global players, um, we also have to think about our health and health status. Um, and so these are the things that really play a large role in, in looking at what we can do without medical intervention. But let's say you tried all those things. And often the people that I do see in my office, which is the number one person to seek care for weight management anywhere in the United States, is going to be a peri or postmenopausal woman, hands down. That's who's going to come in to, to see us, not just me, but to see any of us that do this work. And they're coming in because of exactly what you stated, you know, which is like, oh, wait a minute, I'm doing all those things. I have my trainer. You know, I buy all the food, I prepare the food, I make sure I, I made prepared for the week, I have it already ready, I have all the things done, I've checked all the boxes, you know, by the time we get into this middle age time frame, we have things a little bit more under wraps, right? Like we're, we're not in our 20s and 30s and trying to scramble and figure out things. We're, we're, we're here, we're figuring things out, we're in the 40s, 50s, we're like, wait a minute, I've lived, I've lived more than half of life, I've got this down. 
then you're like, wait a minute, but I don't have this weight thing down. Something, this is out of my control. What's going on? And so if you've done and optimized those things and still find you struggle, that's when medical intervention is probably um, the route that I would take or would suggest that, that one would consider because unfortunately um, it's okay that, you know, we need to use these tools. You know, it's interesting because if someone has high blood pressure or if they have high cholesterol or if they have diabetes or whatever it is, you know, they're willing to go get seen and, and get medical attention, but we feel like we should be able to do this with regards to our weight. And I will tell you that weight dysregulation is more complicated than all of those disease processes I just mentioned. So I just want you to give yourself some space and grace um, if medical attention is part of what the, the pathway you need, I guess. I'm curious because a lot of uh, women have gone out, I don't even know what the stat is about how many diets they've had over their lifetime, even prior to this. Right. And you've talked about the deleterious effects and the rejiggering of the metabolism because of the yo-yo dieting. Could you elaborate right. on it? As many of us don't realize that the brain remembers that kind of stuff. Oh, it does. And so, you know, Tina, what you're talking about is, is weight cycling. Um, and a lot of us are, you know, most people, just most people, we'll just say most people, regardless of who you are, have maybe tried something. You're like, there's a new fad out. Maybe there's the grapefruit diet. You're like, oh, grapefruit's good. You know, it's a good thing. I should be able to, to do that. And, oh, well, maybe now there is, you know, Atkins. Let's take us back to the 90s. Ooh, let's do that. That seems not so bad. Um, okay, wait a minute. No, that's not what's in vogue now. Maybe we should do paleo. You know, that's that's what we should be doing, right? So whatever is the the flavor of the the time is what we try. And so maybe we try it, and let's say our body responds. So let's say we do have some what I call short term success, and you lose some weight. And let's say you lose ten pounds, and you're feeling great. You fit on those pants. You've been you know been in the back of the closet, and you're like feeling great. You go out to some party. You, you're like but then you know your body starts to recognize that, oh, that maybe is not the best type of plan for me, fill in the blank with whatever the plan is. And so then you come off of it because you're like, I don't know if that's sustainable. You know, let me, let me try to come off of it. And then your body regains. Sometimes it'll even go above where you initially started. So maybe you lost 10 pounds. Now, now you gain 12 pounds, which means it's a net gain of right two pounds. And that's not so bad, but then let's say you do the next thing, right? And so over life, the body starts to defend a higher set point for weight. Um, the brain is really talented. It's why it controls everything that we do. It remembers and it wants to defend and protect against you doing whatever again, um, unless, like I said, it's sustainable. Um, and so I always tell people when they come in, they say they want to try out X, Y, or Z diet. I ask them the most important question that I think you need to ask yourself the next time you consider it. And that is, do you want to do this for the rest of your life? And if the answer is no, then I would shy away from it. If the answer is yes, and you feel like this is very doable, it feels very healthy, it feels like it fits in with your life structure, something you could do for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, however much life is left, then go for it. Um, and I think that that's not the question we're asking ourselves when we're starting that diet. We're just like looking for that short-term fix. We have a class reunion coming up. We have a wedding we need to attend, whatever it is. But that strategy is going to lead us to poor outcomes. And so just be thoughtful. Do you want to do this for the rest of your life? If that's a possibility, you think yes, go for it. If the answer is no, run far, far away. I love that. Yeah. And 
Oftentimes, and I know this because it's my industry, fitness professionals will claim and market that they have some kind of magic strategy that they know to lose fat and not muscle. Is this actually probable for a normal person who doesn't work in fitness and obsesses over food and exercise all day long? You know, I, I would say that there's no one magic bullet. And that's in the medical realm, that's in the fitness realm. And I know that we want it to be, right? And this is why, you know, the fitness industry is a, a multi-billion dollar industry. This is why the, the nutrition industry is a multi-billion dollar, because people are always looking for the next greatest thing, right? We can go back over our lives and think about Suzanne Summers and the little, I can't remember what the little thing is that you squeeze the together. Master. The thigh master. I couldn't even remember what it was, but you, I mean, you can go back to, there's, remember the thing that used to jiggle, used to jiggle. Um, yeah. yeah. So we, I mean, we've had all of these things, right? You know, some things have been worse, you know, consistent, right? A treadmill's a treadmill's a treadmill. I mean, it can get fancy and less fancy, but it is what it is. You know, a bike is a bike is a bike. I mean, we have spin bikes versus recumbent and but, you know, those certain things that those aren't like really gimmicky, right? They just are what they are. Um, but has anyone ever truly found the magical thing that works for every single human? The answer is no. Um, and I think we have to recognize the heterogeneity of us as humans. Like each of us is different. Um, unless you have an identical twin, then, okay, you have someone that's basically the same almost. Um, but if you don't have an identical twin, you can look at your siblings and look at the variation and, and how you are. I mean, you come from the same milieu, same mom and dad, same grandparents, same everything, but you're different humans and how your body responds to things are very different. It's okay. It's what makes us exciting. It makes us not boring, but it also tells us that there's not one magic bullet that's going to magically just delete fat and then help you retain only muscle. I mean, it's just, it's just not there. There's nothing in the medical realm that does that either. Um, Yes, there are new medications on the rise and we're hearing about medication after medication after medication. And, and yes, these are good tools to use, but even those great tools that we're hearing about, like this enormous amounts of weight loss, still don't work for everyone. I can tell you because in my patient care of over 2,000 patients, I see such variability in people using similar strategies. It's okay. And so when people ask me, so how much should I lose? I don't know. How much? I don't know. Your body will tell me the answers. Your body is the answer key. We don't know until we try it in your body, in your milieu. I don't know the answer. I can tell you what the range is for humans, but you are one of all of these humans. I don't know what's going to be for you. And so let's just figure it out. Let's see what, let's, let's be patient. Let's determine what works for you. If it doesn't work, let's try another strategy. And I think that's really important. You've said before that it's better to carry excess weight and have muscle rather than be what people call skinny fat. And could you elaborate for the audience on that? Yeah. So when we think about excess weight, we think of all excess weight is, is bad, right? Like if you carry extra weight, it's bad. But it, it depends on where you carry that weight. It's really, really important. So for example, if we have excess weight in our hip, buttock, and thigh region, what I call gluteal femoral capacity, that's not deleterious to our health. It's not around any of our key organs. It's not contributing to our risk for things like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, you know, liver disease, any of these things. And so while you may be like, gosh, you know, I'm wearing these, this kind of more of an apple bottom situation. That's kind of how I'm shaped. It doesn't really harm you. Now, let's talk about when we're carrying that weight in our midsection around our organs. That's when we're in big trouble. You know, we're around all of those organs that are going to lead to higher risk of those diseases that unfortunately lead to premature death. That's problematic. Now, if we have a lot of lean muscle, 
in addition to having some of that excess adiposity, we're protecting against some of those things that lead to premature death, those things that we just talked about. And so when you're looking at even someone like a sumo wrestler, right, like it's not somebody that we might think about, they do carry a lot of excess adiposity, but they also carry a lot of lean muscle. And so their health status is much better than someone that has just the adipose without that lean muscle mass that they have. And so the thing is, is that, you know, when we look at individuals that may be um, a larger body type, um, but are ultra marathoners, a larger body type, but a roar or whatever, they have a health status that's going to be superior to someone that doesn't have that same level of fitness that they have. And so that's really important. It's not just about the number on the scale. It's about, you know, how that weight's distributed, the, the ratio of lean muscle um, to fat mass, whether it's visceral adipose tissue, visceral means around the organs versus subcutaneous, which is just beneath the skin surface. All of these are factors that we have to be thoughtful about instead of just using the number on the scale to dictate one's health. So if we're not focusing on the scale, I see some of the other metrics. What are what are the metrics someone at home could measure? Because they might not necessarily know their body comp. <laughs> so I would say the key thing is using a tape measure. So I would use the, the weight, couple that with like something like a tape measure. Because remember, we talked about if we carry that weight in the midsection, that's going to be the most harmful to our health. Whether it's beneath the skin surface, right beneath the skin surface, what we call the subcutaneous or surrounding the organs, what we call visceral, because you don't have like a fancy DEXA imaging machine at home to just know what that is. Um, now, there's different cutoff measurements. I'll use the most common cutoff measurements, but these vary. For example, for Asian individuals, these are typically lower. But for general um, individuals, in terms of the cutoffs, when we look at metabolic syndrome, we're targeting a waist circumference of 35 inches or less in women and 40 inches or less in men. And if there happen to be any men listening to this, please don't think about what your your pant size is, <laughs> because most men don't wear their pants at their umbilicus. The umbilicus is the belly button, which is the, the easiest place to measure. If you wear your pants where Steve Urkel wore his pants, then that would be the accurate waist measure. But if not, then we need to measure there. It's going to be typically when we measured our belly button, it's going to be more that the widest portion, right? It's going to give us a sense of where we are. Um, and that's really something that we can look now. If we're finding that we're well above that 35 inches, what a lot of people are, then we need to be thoughtful about what strategies can be helpful. Um, this, you know, if we've tried, like I said, all of the behavioral measures, then this might be someone that would be a great candidate for metabolic or bariatric surgery or medications or plus, you know, lifestyle or a combination of all of those things. It just really depends on who the person is, how advanced their disease is when we think about these things. But I wouldn't just use what you do at home, right? You should be engaging in the medical environment because we need to know certain key factors in addition to that. And so I use those two things, right? Weight and waist circumference. But I tie that with what your metabolic profile looks like. What do I, what do I mean by that? A constant, comprehensive metabolic panel, which is going to give me things like your fasting glucose. It's going to give me things like your liver function test, AFT, ALT, alkaline phosphatase. I want to know what your lipid panel looks like. That's your cholesterol values. I want to know if you have high insulin levels at baseline at fasting. All of these things are going to help me shape a determination of where your health is at, not just the size, right? I think that's really important. I will not evaluate patients. And if you can talk to anyone that's tried to do this and come in without having labs um, at their initial appointment, I will cancel your appointment because I can't do a full assessment of who you are. I can't just look at your size and know what your health is. If you're lean, I can't make the prediction that you're going to be healthy. And if you're someone that has obesity, I can't make the prediction that you're unhealthy. I need to know more details about who you are beneath the skin surface. 
I need to look inside. And I think this is something that people do is they make a, a judgment just based upon how someone looks and it doesn't look beneath the skin surface. So I wouldn't just use what you do at home unless you can do all of those lab measures and evaluate them and, and you know, make determinations based upon that. I do think um, that you need that assessment with your, your primary care physician. Um, if you're working with specialists, endocrinologists, cardiologists, et cetera, they also are often taking these measures and get a sense of where your actual health status is beyond the scale, beyond the tape measure. What are your thoughts on whether the pharma industry accepts obesity as a disease and thereby offer the meds at a more affordable price? I'm thinking about Wagovian and Ozempic and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I, I am a strong advocate for equity and, and making sure that tools are accessible for individuals. And right now, uh, I think what you're, you're touching at, Tina, is that if we're talking about a large population that has obesity, you know, over a hundred and you know, 30 million adults in this country, why are these medications priced at premium prices? I don't agree with it. Um, I have always advocated for what I consider to be the Walmart approach, right? Everyone can go into Walmart and buy something and come out. There's there's almost no humans that can't get something from Walmart, right? Because it's priced reasonably and it's a price so that it's accessible to most Americans. If we have a problem that's a Walmart-sized problem, why are we pricing um, in a way that really is kind of the Bentley Rolls Royce type of pricing, right? That's that's inaccessible um, for most people. It shouldn't be um, priced in that sort. And then all of a sudden, if you were to actually mass produce and give to more people, wouldn't you be able to actually make more profit, right? Um, and actually help the society. So I think we have to be, we, not me, um, but pharma needs to be thoughtful about this. Like if you, let's look at what the Fortune 500 companies are. Are they Walmart or are they Bentley and Rolls Royce? Which one is, is ranked higher? Technically it's Walmart. I think we all know that. We know how much that family is worth. They're worth that because they have products that are accessible to everyone. They're getting to the masses. And that's what we need for, for patients um, in terms of assessing medications and medication treatment. We do it with other chronic diseases. Why shouldn't we do it with obesity, which is the most prevalent chronic disease in human history? And I have one final question that was also from my audience. Okay. Is there some sort of causal link between obesity and genes? Absolutely. So um, a lot of the early studies looking at obesity and genetics come from Albert Stunkard, who looked at identical twins, since I did touch upon that subject. And he found that if you, you know, look at identical twins and their genetic makeup, that their, their heritability of their weight is, is very, very potent um, and very much intertwined. Um, so much so that you can take um, twins, identical twins, and place one in Zimbabwe and raise one in Hong Kong and pair them up 40 years later and their weight status will look identical. It's very quite wow. interesting. Like despite the fact that their environment, I would say, is very, very different. Something about that heritability of their weight is so strong that no matter where you place them, you pull them back together. And this is what happens when identical twins are separating. They come together like, oh, my gosh, you look exactly like me, despite the fact that we've had very different lives, life circumstances, et cetera. So weight is highly heritable. Um, studies show that between 50 to 75 percent in some studies, some as high as 85 percent of weight is heritable. Um, think of weight as, as heritable as height. Um, so when we think about our being born to tall parents, we assume that, you know, the children are going to be tall. Um, if we have shorter parents, we assume we're going to be short. Similarly, if patients have obesity, their children will often follow similar trajectories. Not their fault. 
um, but it really is a part of the milieu that they're put together. Um, I simplify this, and um, some people have heard me explain it this way by looking and thinking about dogs. And we're not dogs, we're humans, but it's really easy to think about dogs in different breeds, right? If you made a bulldog with a bulldog, you wouldn't get a bulldog. Right? If you made a chihuahua with a chihuahua, you wouldn't get a chihuahua. And if you probably put a bulldog with a chihuahua, I don't know how that how it would work, but let's say you somehow are able to get together, we're probably going to have some hybrid. Maybe they're more like the bulldog, maybe they're slightly more like the chihuahua. Probably they're going to be somewhere in between. And so when we think of it in that way, it makes sense that, oh, if we have parents that carry a bit more excess weight, that the likelihood they're produced children that are similar in nature is, is pretty easy to understand. Dr. Fatima, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. And I hope everybody has enjoyed listening to all the gems that you just shared with us. Well, thank you so much, Tina, for having me.